Let's go to the phones. Let's go to Lester, Mobile, Alabama. Lester, what's going on? Hey, Jim. Hey, I'm calling. I'm sick to my stomach about Eric Church canceling the concert. He broke my heart, man. When I broke up with my sister, Eric Church was the only thing that got me through the breakup, man. He helped me. Get back on the horse, and now I can say I'm happily dating my cousin. But this- ah! No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. Lester. How we could potentially use being a twin to our advantage. Like you switch girlfriends and they don't know? Uh, that only happened once. We never felt that way. For us, it was about how do we keep our team as lean as possible while still continuing to grow? And we knew that utilizing something like would allow us to be able to do that. Part of what we realized was that we don't ever want to be like that, no matter how successful we are as we get older. And I think that one of the things, I mean, like, you know, looking back, like one of the things that I would probably change is... James in Portland. What's up, James? Jimmy, what is up, brother? And Alvy, my man, happy sex day. And word up, Lester. Alvy, I love when Jim mentioned today that some dude injected blow in his penis. You said, dude, dude, I got to try that, man. Alvy, it's called booger sugar, not shaft sugar. And Jim... Ah. That's not a good no. You don't like that cup. I don't like that cup. Not a very good cup. So my name is Matthew Carcone. I'm 36 years old, and I'm one of the co-owners of a real estate company in Washington, D.C. called Gordon James Real Estate. And I'm Tom Carcone. I'm his twin brother, so also, you know, 36. I live right outside of Washington, D.C., and uh, yeah, do you want to sort of give some of the you know kind of background on the company? Yeah, so our business has, has been in existence for now about nine years. And we started as primarily your traditional property management company, so managing single family units. And then we expanded that business relatively quickly. And maybe we'll get into that a little bit later on. But we expanded that into more of the commercial realm of property management. So HOAs, condo associations, any really community associations that are in and around DC. The areas that we serve, primarily Washington, DC, as well as Virginia and Maryland as well, very small parts of Maryland that are all proximity-wise pretty close to DC. Beyond the commercial management and residential management, we also are a brokerage. So we mainly focus on listings or on the listing side. I serve as the principal broker of Gordon James Brokerage. So we have 23 employees. And in terms of the gross revenue of the company, it's about 4 million or a little bit over that. And how long have y'all been in business? So we've been in business since 2014. That makes it about nine years, eight, nine years now. Okay. And so, yeah, with that, I mean, what did y'all start off with? Like employee count, was it just the two of y'all or like, can you just tell me how it's kind of grown over the years? Yeah. So this is Tom. So the business originally started off with me and a roommate that I had from college. We both moved to Washington, D.C. Matt actually moved here as well. And then Matt ended up moving to New York to be with his girlfriend, who is now his wife. And so my friend and I sort of had this idea of starting a property management company. And to sort of take a little step back, 
the reason why we got into it in the first place was we both went to a school called Binghamton University in upstate New York. And so we graduated there in 2008. And at that time, real estate was incredibly cheap there. And we always kind of had an interest in real estate. And so we ended up buying our first property and we ended up renting it. We managed it from a different state. It ended up you know, proving to be fairly challenging. We then sort of changed gears a little bit, found a property manager who was local. And then that's what exposed us to the property management industry. We had interest in it. We did some research on the local market. We found that a lot of the companies were generational businesses that didn't really seem to utilize a lot of technology. And so we felt like we could come in, you know, being younger and starting fresh, building a company primarily based on the use of technology. So specifically, do y'all just deal with commercial real estate or do you do residential too? We still do residential. And the business started off with us just doing like single family residential properties. The reason why we started in that is that that's what was barrier to entry. A lot of companies, as they get bigger, they sort of phase out the single family property management business. We still kind of tend to like that business, mainly because it's a really diversified business. So instead of having maybe 25 or 30 large commercial buildings that you're managing, each of those clients representing a large percentage of the overall revenue, we kind of like the residential side because we had 600 plus clients that were each representing a really small percentage of the overall revenue for the company. And so we felt like it was a really diversified business in that sense. I think the reason why a lot of other companies end up sort of phasing out of that is that it is a fairly labor-intensive and resource-intensive business because you might have one owner that only owns a single property as opposed to sort of consolidating units in like a larger building. And so there are definitely a lot of challenges with that. And that's why we thought when we were starting this company that we could bring in a fresh perspective on it and utilize technology from the beginning in order for us to operate the business in a more efficient way. So everything that we've done with the business has always been technology first and trying to create the systems and the processes to make the business and the management run a lot more efficiently than a lot of other businesses, I think, at that time. I mean, since then, a lot of those businesses have tried to migrate to some of like the prepackaged software that's out there. There are definitely more folks in the industry that are definitely utilizing more technology. At the time that we started, there just weren't very many in the industry that were using any sort of modern technology. And so that kind of allowed us to differentiate ourselves initially. And it allowed us to grow the business really, really rapidly. So you started 2014 with your friend, Tom. Then how it's evolved, it just went into more commercial real estate. And do y'all do just management? It sounds like you do some brokerage, but what's the percentage of breakdown of like how it's evolved or just give us a general timeline of now, and then we'll rewind it to eventually how y'all got started. Yeah. So like 95%, I would say would be management with 5%, roughly maybe closer to 10 being brokerage. Okay. Yeah. So today that's how it's based out. Yep. All right. Well, is there anything else that you think we should know about your company before we rewind it? It wasn't so much that we said that, hey, we're going to go into brokerage or that we're going to go into commercial management. It was the fact that oftentimes it was more of an organic current client of ours who perhaps we manage their individual unit in a condo building here in DC. They would come to us and say, hey guys, we're unhappy with our association management company. Do you guys do this? We love the service that you provide on the individual management side. Or on the other side of things with the brokerage, a client would come to us and say, hey guys, been super happy with the way that you're managing my unit. 
it seems like there'd be good synergy just passing off potential listing to you guys if we decide to sell. Do you guys do brokerage? And so initially, we were just referring that business to other real estate professionals here in DC. And then we took a step back and said, hey, like, why don't we actually try this on our own? And that's how we got into these other businesses that we're currently in outside of just residential management. Okay. It seems like it makes sense. Well, I do have one question before we figure out how you got started. So one twin is called Matthew. The other one's called Tom, right? You got it. Yep. So why the hell is it called Gordon James Realty Services? <laughs> that's a good question. That actually goes back to the original person who I started the business with, which was the roommate from college. His middle name is Gordon. My middle name is James. And so we just put the two together and we thought that Gordon James Realty kind of had a nice sound to it. I worked with that individual for about two years. And then after the second year, we both came together and there were things that, I mean, it's always difficult to obviously go into business with anyone. Well, especially a friend. So you decided, let's get rid of the friend and bring family instead. So just make it even more difficult if you want to get rid of him too, huh? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have two older brothers too. I mean, I can speak to this. that Like the relationship with a twin, at least in our particular situation, is even that much more different than the relationship with a brother. The two of us just kind of have this common understanding and we have a really effective way of being able to communicate everything to each other. I think the friend that I went into business with, in terms of the communication, which is obviously essential with any sort of business partner, there were definitely difficulties with that where I kind of felt like I had to sort of like tiptoe around different issues. I just didn't feel like that was really a sustainable way to grow. I sort of have the mindset of just being as straightforward as possible when it comes to communication and not everyone really has that same style. So bringing my twin brother in allowed us to be able to communicate really clearly and effectively that way and not really worrying about tiptoeing around each other. Well, yeah, and look forward to kind of getting into the details on that too, if you don't mind later on, because I think that helps too, because if you have a friend and like you're saying, tiptoeing around anything, even if it's non-business related, no one wants to do that forever. I mean, there'll be times when that happens, right? But why don't we go ahead and rewind it to y'all growing up, y'all decide where you want to start in the story and were you entrepreneurs kind of growing up or like I said, y'all tell me where we want to get started with this. Yeah. So let's go back, I guess, early on when we were growing up. And so we were born in Derry, New Hampshire. We lived in Syracuse, New York until we were seven. And then from seven up until we graduated college, we lived in New Jersey. That's where our parents' house was. And so we did have this entrepreneurial interest, I think, from an early age. And that actually started, I would say, with my brother and I going door to door in the neighborhood and asking if they needed landscaping services. It was something that we actually enjoyed doing for my parents' house. And it ended up growing into... Not a big business, but one that we took care of the neighbor's yards, took a lot of pride in that. And it also taught us a lot of really important life lessons. So for example, there was this one neighbor of ours that didn't want to increase year over year the fees that we were looking to charge. We understood and knew how much a professional landscaping company would charge. We felt like our services were somewhere actually comparable. And so it took a lot of courage, I felt at that time, to be able to knock on his door and let him know, hey, we're looking to increase the fees. Here's why. And he ended up agreeing to the increased fees. It was just a really good life lesson for us that you're not going to get anything unless you actually ask for it. Can I pause right there? Because I 100% agree. It's so funny because I've been thinking about this lately, too. I mean, when I grew up, I would cut some lawns for apartment buildings and stuff like that. I mean, just one or two just on the side to make side hustle money. But I still remember I feel like the person was taking advantage of me because I was doing it for like 30 bucks, maybe, or 35. 
it it was huge. And I think I was like maybe 13 or something like that. It's so funny that you said that because I literally was thinking about this yesterday. I'm like, that's a good life lesson. They're going to keep taking advantage of you unless you kind of do the homework and figure it out. And I remember eventually that I did ask for money, but it was still even like five or 10 bucks more when it probably should have been like double. So I think that's a great point that you bring up. I would even touch on that a little bit more. Yeah. And so part of what I realized was that we took a lot of pride in the work that we did. And I knew that just visually looking at the yards and the way that we manicured the yard or edging, you know, the leaf blowing, et cetera, like we did everything that a professional company would do. But with the age differential, being a 14 year old at the time, with our neighbor being uh, probably 65 plus year old, he was a developer, had a lot of experience dealing with contractors, was sort of a hard nosed guy. It was really difficult to work up the courage to go over there and actually ask for more money. We knew that we deserved it. We knew that we were being underpaid at the time. And it was one of those things that I think if I was in the business by myself at the time without having Tom with me, it would have been a much more challenging thing to do that. Him and I talked with each other and saying, hey, you know, let's go for it. Like, we know that we deserve this. I think it was critical in that situation. It's important to have sort of a partner to be able to rely on and to also give you the encouragement to be able to have those conversations. And I think that has served us well throughout our career together, owning this business and making sure that those things just come up. It was a really important life lesson for us. Well, and I do think that it was also kind of interesting too. I mean, even at that early age, you know, we were probably only maybe 12 or 13 at the time. Even at that time, we sort of were able to kind of figure out like what each of our strengths were. I kind of had less of a fear of going to the neighbor to actually ask for us to be able to increase the fee. Matt was probably a bit more hesitant. He was kind of more like the executor, the one who had to do like the striping and the longs and like the perfect edging and all that. And I was kind of more of the business side of it. I mean, obviously I would help him, but my strength was definitely more so in kind of being able to like go up and communicate that fee increase to the neighbor. And I think that carried through even to our business today. And with any business partner, you kind of have to understand where the strengths and the weaknesses are for each one. Ideally, each business partner has strengths in different areas and you're able to stay in your lane. So that way you don't have both business owners or partners focused or being good at the same thing. So it was definitely, again, an early lesson that I feel like just kind of transcended to today. And then, I mean, the other piece of that too, is that like the only reason why we were going door to door asking neighbors if we could mow their lawn was that a lot of that had to do with our parents. They definitely did not believe in giving us, you know, any sort of like allowance. They were very big believers, sort of that old school mentality. And they gave us a ton of freedom, but they weren't going to give us money to do a lot of things like we wanted to do with our friends. And we knew that the only way for us to be able to go to the movies or, you know, just like go out with friends and be able to pay for things was by making our own money. And I think that was a pretty amazing life lesson. I think one that the two of us both hope to kind of pass down to our kids in that if you're giving someone something for free, then they just sort of have that expectation that everything is going to be for free. And that was definitely not the way that we were raised. But, you know, I think that the two of us are going to be thankful that our parents raised us in that way, you know, to be able to just kind of show us that from an early age. Do y'all plan on telling your kids to go ask for more money? Because I was thinking like my parents, I don't think even they even knew, like I didn't really have to work. I didn't get allowance, but they provided for everything. So it didn't really matter. So it was more just fun money that I could go do other stuff with. But I'm like, I think I would tell my kids too. I'd make sure that, hey, it seems like they might be taking advantage of you. And it's not like, oh, I wish my parents would have told me. It's not like they would even know. But I'm like, maybe I'll probably tell them that early on is like, if you don't ask for it, you're never going to get anything. 
Yeah, because I don't think that anyone is going to proactively just, I mean, something that we've definitely seen from an early age. I mean, no one, most people are not going to proactively just offer to pay you more. And so being able to kind of speak up for yourself and be able to ask for what you think you deserve, I definitely think is a really, really good lesson. I think it's definitely something that I'll definitely teach my kids. I mean, that goes with asking for more money or I remember, you know, there were different situations in school where I maybe felt like I deserved a better grade. And I think a lot of parents tend to make the mistake of trying to speak up for their kids. We even see it to this day. We actually own quite a bit of college student housing as well. And we'll still have parents that are reaching out on behalf of their college student about a question that for whatever reason, their son or daughter is just not comfortable asking. We were never in a position like that. Our parents, again, were big believers in if you want something or feel like something is unfair, speak up for yourself. And that's definitely you know something that we definitely did. And yeah, I think it's something that we'll definitely pass down to our kids for sure. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I would never make my kids into pussies where I'm going to call for them about apartments, right? <laughs> I think the only thing that I would say is like, hey, go make sure that, you know, see if they're charging 30 bucks. Hey, son, you might want to go check out and see if what other people are charging, right? So I think that's just important for anyone listening now, even has kids. Don't call the guy who's lawn he's mowing and say, hey, I want 50 for my son instead of 30. Like make the son ask for it, but just make him aware of it. So y'all started your first business at 12 or 13 or 14 or whatever, up in that age range, cutting lawns and then take us from there. Yeah. And then after that, we actually caddied, which was a eye-opening experience for us. We caddied at a local private golf course in our town in New Jersey. And the reason that it was an eye-opening experience is we actually saw firsthand how we as you know if we were older in that same position as being a member of this private country club how we'd actually want to treat someone that was in a position of a caddy for example what we didn't like was that a lot of the older members of the club they wanted to have this aura about them as they're wealthier individuals and they get what they ask for and so that sort of translated to how they treated we felt the caddies there Part of what we realized was that, number one, we don't ever want to be like that, no matter how successful we are as we get older. And number two, it sort of taught us as well how to have a bit of a backbone, even as we were probably 15 at the time when we were catting, and to know when to push back when it's appropriate. And not in a rude way in, in any way, but just learn how to get some respect, even as a young kid. And that's hard to do, especially when you're looking at these older members, and they're sort of cocky, and they're coming off as people that we don't necessarily respect. But we also grinded through it, and we did it for like two years. We had to wake up on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, when we caddied at like 5, 5.30 to get in the caddy line. And then maybe didn't finish our day until 2, 3 o'clock. We used to try to double bag, which means carrying two golf bags, because instead of making 40 to $50 a round, you can make 90 to $100 a round. And so it was important because we just continually to make money, we did things that we didn't necessarily want to do, but that we knew that the end outcome would be what we wanted. And I'll tell you, I mean, it felt great after the weekend, counting how much money we made from catting. It definitely taught us a lot. Well, do you have like an example of how they treated you and how you didn't want to treat other people that way? Yeah. So for example, like there was one of the other caddies that we golfed with was sort of a nerdier looking type. I used to call him Poindexter. That's so lame. <laughs> it definitely is lame, but at the time, it really hurt the kids' feelings, right? Oh, no, I agree. It's mean, but it's just lame to even anyone who's trying to make fun of someone. Hey, Poindexter. But it's definitely still mean. Like, yeah, but yeah, keep going. Sorry. You know, these like older guys that are trying to impress their friends by 
making fun of a poor 14 year old kid who can't like, you know, really defend himself. And yeah. he just stood there with like his head down. I mean, that was a story that I feel like, you know, definitely stuck with both of us in that sort of showed us at an early age. It is important to have like respect for everyone, whether it be a service person or someone like that doing kind of a shitty job. It's definitely important. Well, to answer your question, I mean, I'm not sure how we, what we did to have it not happen to us. We were lucky enough that it did not. And I think my brother Tom and I just not buying into that. Like we didn't laugh when they called that Caddy Poindexter. Like we just didn't really buy into that BS. And so I would say that we were probably actually a little bit on the quieter end. And we didn't bring attention to ourselves to, I guess, have them focus their attention on us. And I would say that's sort of one of the reasons how, or one of the ways that we, I think, were not on the receiving end of a lot of the things that happened during our time as caddies. Energetic Austin here. And if you're a product manager, innovator, or a startup business person like me, you know how hard it is to be sure your next big idea will be a hit. In fact, 85% of new products fail. And a huge reason for all that failure is that it's just too hard to validate product market fit with consumers. Old style market research is too slow, too complicated, and too expensive for fast moving teams trying to build something great. But what if you could test out your product ideas with target consumers whenever you want, before you put all the time and money into development? That's what startups and Fortune 500 companies do with Feedback Loop. Get quality feedback from their target customers early and often. Feedback Loop is the test before you invent product research platform. It's got expert templates for concept testing, user discovery, prioritizing features on your roadmap, and a lot more. You can create your own test in minutes and get back quality insights from your target consumers in hours. And if you go to go.feedbackloop.com forward slash millionaire, you'll get three full tests for free. So if you want your next product or feature to be a hit, test before you invest. Build based on data, not opinion, and launch with confidence with Feedback Loop. I was reminded how fragile life is when I was threatened by a podcast listener. And on that note, it makes sense why people get life insurance, especially term coverage, which is surprisingly affordable. Why not pay a bit each month to protect the ones you love? If you're asking yourself this question, choose Ladder. Ladder is 100% digital. No doctors, no needles, no paperwork. When you apply for 3 million in coverage or less, just answer a few questions about your health in an application. You just need a few minutes and a phone or laptop to apply. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out if you're instantly approved. No hidden fees, cancel anytime. Get a full refund if you change your mind in the first 30 days. Ladder policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims. They're rated A and A plus by AM Best. Ladder's customers rate them 4.8 out of 5 on Trustpilot, and they made Forbes Best Life Insurance 2021 list. Finally, since life insurance costs more as you age, now's the time to cross it off your list. So go to ladderlife.com slash millionaire today. See if you're instantly approved. That's L-A-D-D-E-R-L-I-F-E dot com slash millionaire. Ladderlife.com slash millionaire. I mean, I think that's a great point. 
again, I'm not laughing at them, like what they said to the kid, like what shitheads would do that, right? And the funny thing is when we came home and told our parents, we're always, and we still are really close to our mom and dad. I mean, we tell them everything. When we came home and told them that, their reaction was not to tell us to never go back there again. They were proud of us that we actually recognized at that time that that was wrong and that didn't want to be like that. And so that to them was great. I think they saw a lot of, maybe even subconsciously, a lot of the lessons that we were learning in this, what would be considered a pretty crappy job or kind of a hard job. My dad especially, I think, valued the fact that we were just working hard and we were able to uh, see what we did about that, but still sort of continue forward in it. Yeah, and I guess maybe it made an impact at that point, but it's kind of crazy even thinking about today, but you're 36, is that that still made an impression even today that you even can remember that, right? It's weird those things that will make you an impression. That's why it's important, you know, even if we have bad bosses or whatever, but when you see people being shitty people, you're like, okay, I don't want to be like that. And that made enough of an impression because this is obviously all story to tell, but I remember there was something like I went to a soccer camp and I was about the same age. I was like, I would say about 14 and I was wearing a backpack. I still remember this. And I had like a hatch on it, on the back of it. It was like a GN Sport regular backpack. And two college kids were making fun of me. And I'm like, in my head, you fucking losers. <laughs> You're making fun of a 14-year-old. Obviously, I'm not as big as them, but I'm like, man... I just can't believe people even act like that and that you think you're cool that you're like 22, 23, making fun of like a 13 or 14 year old, you know? Right. <laughs> right. And it sounds even worse if it's like older guys that y'all are golfing with. It's just kind of sickening that it's embarrassing that the guys who do that, it's usually just because they've got a worse life. They're the ones actually making fun of 13 or 14 year old boys on a golf course, you know? For sure. Yeah. Happiness, you know, somewhere in there, right? Right. Obviously. It's really, really sad. It's almost as bad as it gets when you're making fun of like, I don't know, preteen or teenage boys or anything younger. Like, okay. So at that age, okay, it's good that you're getting these impressions and hopefully they're kind of values that you think of today, obviously, and bring to your business. But where do you go from there as far as after doing the golfing? Yeah. And so then we worked after that, we worked at a local driving range, which is a great gig for, I think, Tom and I both, because we were able to run both the little pro shop as well as run the opening and the closing of the property. So essentially we have full on management like responsibility. The owner was more of a hands-off owner, which we always found surprising because we were 17 at a time, I think when we started that job, but it taught us sort of responsibility. It taught us how to act in the right way and have the right morals in place to be able to, you know, we could have easily have, I'm sure, stolen money from that business. I mean, it was for the most part, a lot of people paid cash, but Tom and I both never did that. And so I think that was part of the reason why the business owner trusted us. But it was also just great to be able to, we thought, run a business in that capacity. It was a very small one, a driver range, but still felt good to be able to sell uh, clubs out of the pro shop. We were actually commissioned on that, which was our first, quote unquote, sales commission that we received. And it was fun. We really enjoyed that job. Well, it sounds like y'all are busy all through, I guess, high school and going to college. And if this is happening, I was curious, what did your parents do for work? I don't think we touched on that. So our mother was a stay-at-home mom, which we loved at the time, and, you know, still love the fact that she was. That was actually important part of our upbringing. Our dad was one of the C-level executives of an IT company. He started his career in sales and then sort of worked his way up, traveled a lot, worked long, long hours, but he was, you know, for the most part, the sole breadwinner for the family. And we relied on him to obviously live the life that we lived. My mom and dad did a really good job of, I think, instilling that in us. In terms of the work ethic, the reason why our father was working so hard growing up. And we were, I think, always very understanding of that. And the fact that perhaps he was not home as often as the other dads. But we also saw what we had, perhaps, that the other families did not. 
And so that was a good life lesson for us. Something that our parents like really tried to discuss with us. They were never afraid to discuss like, you know, money with us. I mean, we didn't know obviously like how much my dad made, but anytime that we would go out to dinner as a family, there was always the discussion around, you know, how much things cost on the menu. Maybe we wanted to get something that was fairly expensive and they would tell us to pick something cheaper. They would take us to like Disney World. We used to take a family vacation every year. And as kids, you know, we always wanted to buy the different food at the concession stands. We always used to pack our lunch. And I think that it definitely taught us a lesson and always be aware of that kind of stuff. I think that it's definitely helped us like with our business now in terms of always thinking about like money and how much things cost and how to bring more money in. And a lot of that definitely comes from both of our parents. Right. I mean, when I look at a menu, I always basically look at the cheapest thing and start going up. I'm like, is it worth it? Is it worth it? You know, the top 10 priciest things, I don't even look at. I pretend they're not on the menu. So, and it's nothing that I'm ever going to stop because I'm like, uh, like if I go somewhere and just like a $40 dinner and I see something that's like 12 or 10 and I'm, yeah, I'll get the $10 one because that looks good to me anyways. It's not worth the value to me, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree with you on that. All right. So maybe I'm not the only crazy. So at least three of us think the same. I don't know. But all right. So from the golf store, then y'all go to college and are y'all working in college too? Yeah, we did. So we worked actually throughout college as well, which was, I think, different than a lot of, in terms of our direct friend group. Most of them actually did not work in college. But again, it was one of those things where our parents certainly could have afforded to give us some free spend money to go out on the weekends, to go out to dinners, whatever it may be. We were lucky enough that we didn't have to take out any loans for college, didn't have any financial aid. They were able to pay for the entire four years. Part of the deal with that, though, was that we would be paying for everything sort of that fell outside of that, right? So that fell outside of the room and board cost. And so both Tom and I, at the time, we were into working out and there was a great job on campus that was working at the school gym. It was actually an unpaid internship for the first semester, which was a great deal for them because they, of course, didn't have to pay us. But in return for that, though, we got our personal trainer's license. And then also the following semester, we were able to actually continue working at the gym, but got paid. And I remember the pay, I, I can remember what it was per hour, but I remember being actually pretty good for back in, this was now probably 2006. So we worked at the university gym for like two and a half years, three years while we were in school. And it was great. I mean, it gave us the income that we needed to be able to do what we wanted to do. And we used that money also to buy books. That was part of the deal that my parents had with us. But yeah, we worked at that job throughout college. Were y'all getting swole so you could go back and uh, beat up those golfers? <laughs> We're Jersey guys. So I think that's one of the reasons why we got into working out. We unfortunately gone on in our careers and we're dads now. Work out like we used to. But yes, we were definitely concentrated on getting swole, especially before going out at night. <laughs> nice. You So you had the gel in your hair and everything? No. <laughs> oh, y'all were on the Jersey Shore, actually? Or no? No. <laughs> okay, that's what I'm envisioning. I don't know if I should be, but kind of that idea. Physically, we maybe looked kind of like that. But I mean, I think just the mantra that we subscribed to, though, was actually the complete opposite. We weren't actually big on going out to clubs. We, I don't think, even knew what house music was. And so, no, I mean, that certainly was not our, you know, it's not what we looked to do was to go out late night to the bars. We were actually more homebodies. We got to stay in with a small group. Tom and I had girlfriends throughout college, and I think it allowed us to do what we wanted to do, which was not go out super late at night and be more, I think, centered, which is what we liked more. And then what year did y'all end up graduating? So we ended up graduating in 2008. Sort of an interesting year to graduate. That was pre-Lehman collapse. 
a lot of our foray into our first career was actually seeing what they deemed as Great Recession. And a lot of our fellow people that we went to school with, our friends, they weren't able to keep solid employment and were doing jobs that were far below what a college grad might be doing. And so we started our careers at a company called the Corporate Executive Board. It's now called CEB back in 2008. Y'all worked for the same company coming out? We did, yeah. Was that easy to do too? Or y'all like, we're a package deal or we're not doing it? I mean, we sort of used the twin thing to our advantage. I remember they obviously had like job fairs back on campus. And we strategized before about like the best way to approach it. I mean, initially growing up, I remember Matt didn't really feel this way, but I kind of felt a bit more like this. I didn't really love being a twin growing up because we used to get a lot of attention. We also used to dress alike till we were probably in like, you know, fourth or fifth grade. I was never really a big fan of the attention. And so I didn't really love being a twin at that point. But as we got older, I think into like our college years, we started to see the benefits of how we could potentially use being a twin to our advantage. Like you switch girlfriends and they don't know? Uh, that only happened once. <laughs> Did it really happen once or no? <laughs> there was a girl in one of Matt's lectures that thought that like he was attractive or whatever. And Matt was dating his girlfriend at the time. I was single. So that was back in the day when Facebook had the pokes. And so I think that, you know, he got poked. <laughs> <laughs> poked multiple times right. right and then i don't think you're allowed to use that word today poking people on facebook people are being offended by that this is sort of the <laughs> first year that facebook was yeah like, yeah yeah exactly no you're definitely right because i mean we're the exact same age so i definitely do remember a poke feature i've totally forgot about that until you just said that <laughs> <laughs> and i forgot like how we kind of transitioned it to me but i stepped in or i think matt responded and then i met her out for a date and like she didn't actually realize that I wasn't mad for like a month. So that was definitely fun. Well, I'm glad you used it to your advantage at one point. I mean, the other thing was the job fairs. We had this strategy where he would go and speak to a recruiter first, and then I'd follow up two or three minutes later and speak to the same person. And it was always the same reaction, like, did I just speak to you? And then that opened the conversation. We talked about being identical twins. And it was just amazing how effective it was in terms of differentiating ourselves. I mean, it's a really simple thing. You know, I also like to believe that we had some substance behind what we were actually speaking to them about, but it definitely made us, I think, stand out compared to other people who maybe didn't have that same thing. So our intention, though, was always to work at the same job after college. I don't even think it was something that we had discussed. I think that it was something that was just unspoken that we just wanted to live in the same place after college. And so we got the job at the corporate executive board. We both started there together. We lived in the same apartment. And again, that was back in 2008. And the corporate executive board was a consulting company at the time. They sold best practice research. So we worked there. And then in later 2008, maybe early 2009, they did some fairly large mass layoffs. They probably laid off, I think, in the role that we were in, maybe 80 or 90% of the people. I was actually one of those people that was on the chopping block. And this, I think, relates back to some of what we had discussed initially about some of the lessons that we had learned subconsciously in terms of like speaking up for ourselves. I remember when I knew that I was one of the people that was going to be fired, I scheduled a meeting with the head of the department. And at that time, I didn't really know what I was going to discuss with them. I just knew that I didn't want to be fired. Prior to the meeting, I prepped for it. I pulled all my numbers. I came up with the business case as to why they should keep me. And once that person presented it to them, and then they ended up actually removing me from the list of people to be fired. They sort of put me in kind of like a transition role until they could figure out something permanent for me. 
And the person that I spoke to came up to me, you know, after they decided that they didn't want to let me go and said that the only reason why they did that was he basically said because I had the balls to go up to him to actually present or explain to him why I should remain with the company. And I think that goes back to the earlier story that we're talking about being proactive when you ask for a raise. It's like, no matter what at the end of the day, like, yeah, you were proactive. And I like a guy who's willing to do that because then if there's a boss later on too, that maybe you're willing to say something if they're doing something wrong, right? So I think that's really important. For sure. So we stayed there for a while. We started off as cold callers. And so it was actually a pretty intense cold calling program. I mean, Matt would call into heads of finance. At that time, I was calling into heads of HR. And the goal was to set up meetings for the sales executive that like we were partnered with. So we did that for a while. And then we transitioned into sales roles where I sold into heads of sales. And then he sold into heads of finance. We did that for a couple of years. And then he ended up actually moving to New York to be with his girlfriend. Yes, my girlfriend at the time was living in New York, but I also were finance majors and I wanted to pursue finance. And so I was able to move to New York. I got a job at a mutual fund company and decided very, very quickly that that was actually not the job for me. It actually brought me back to the days of catting where it was one of those, you know, you had to really kiss ass at the partners or to the higher ups to be able to have any mobility. And so I felt relatively quickly that that was probably not where I wanted to stay. And then I moved after that job in New York to another job at a company called GLG, very similar to actually CEB or the corporate executive board, and worked at that job for close to five years, where I was able to travel about four days a week. My job was to actually break into the top 50 pharma and medical device companies that were not currently clients of ours. My job was to break into those companies to determine or to find a way to be able to work with them. So a quote unquote sort of hunter job that was sales related. And I found that incredibly fulfilling. I found that job to be, you know, with the travel and with the challenge of trying to understand and figure out the angle, how do we get into this massive company and then to finally do it. Like that was incredibly rewarding. And it was a job that I think a lot of the things that I learned, I still take with me today. And then after I did that, I decided to say, hey, I'm looking for a change in careers. My brother, Tom, who had started this company with that college roommate, he knew it was not working with a roommate and he was really needing and looking for a partner. And so I was commuting back and forth from New York City to D.C. on a weekly basis for about a year before moving to D.C. full time to commit to being a partner at this company. Okay. And so what year did you do that? Did that in 2015. All right. So yeah, I think we got that part of the story of when Matthew joined. And thank you for kind of running down how you kind of came back into the company. But can we kick it back over to Tom, I guess, as far as after Matthew went to New York, were you sad about that? Or did you have a discussion about that? I'm just curious on how that worked out. <laughs> we didn't actually really have a discussion about it. I mean, I think he just maybe told me one day, hey, I'm going to be moving to New York in the next two weeks. And I think that I said something like, good luck. We're not like super affectionate people towards each other, right? I mean, there's just kind of this common understanding that obviously we care for each other. But I think that at that time, when Matt left, which I guess was back in maybe 2010, I think that we both thought at that time that it was going to be a really good experience for us. It was the first time in our lives that we were going to be apart. And I think that we both felt it was maybe time to experience that, like spread our wings and be on our own for a little bit. And I think that it was a really good experience in that way. Like we always kind of had the safety net of having each other around. And I think when he left, like we didn't have that. And so we had to maybe learn to fend for ourselves a bit more. I mean, like one of the things that was great working at the same company was that we obviously had other colleagues that we were definitely friends with. 
but we always both mutually felt like we looked out for each other more than any friend would ever look out for us. We always 100% had each other's best interests in mind. You know, when you're working for a company, there's sort of this competitive factor that a lot of people want to be better than their colleagues, especially in the sales job. When we were giving each other advice, it was always just coming from a really good place. We never had to question it. And when he left, the two of us didn't really have that anymore. But I think that it was a good experience for us to be able to see that on our own. So he moved to New York. I stayed with the corporate executive board for a few more years. I continued in the sales role. And then I ended up moving to a different company a year before I started boarding James. And I was doing like IT sales for a large IT company. Part of the reason why I actually moved is that it was a remote job. And at that time, remote work was not really a thing. But I knew that I wanted to start the property management business. And so selfishly, I sort of thought that I could do both at the same time. I could work for this company remotely. And then it would also give me some flexibility to be able to start formulating what we wanted to do with the property management business. So I worked there for about a year. And then while I was doing that off the side of my desk, I was starting to kind of build up the property management clients. It was just me and my friend at that time that were kind of doing everything. So if we had to go show a property for rent, I was running out to do that, or he was running out to do that. We were figuring out what we wanted our like marketing to look like. We just had, there was a lot of work that you know kind of went into the upfront of what we wanted this business to actually be. So a year after I started that job at the IT company, I then decided I was just getting too busy with the property management. And so I quit that job, which was a difficult decision and definitely a scary one. I think most entrepreneurs would probably say the same thing, especially if they had like a corporate job. That was definitely one of the most challenging decisions that I've had to make in terms of being ready to actually pull that trigger and say, I'm ready to just be able to fully support myself. Well, really quick before you, yeah, we jump into that, because I agree, I want to hear that transition. But can we talk about it? your transition first of even doing it on the side? It's, you know, the Gordon James being your kind of side hustle while you have the IT company. Tell me how you're able even to get your first client, because I'm sure there's people thinking right now, maybe I want to get into property management. Maybe I want to start my own company. Maybe it might be one person listening where it doesn't, again, have to be property management. But I think that's almost the hardest hurdle is like, how do I get into an industry that you're not really in yet and get your first client and start doing that? So walk us through that, how you figured that out. So that was kind of at the time too. And I'm sure that it was probably even prior to this, but when SEO really became a thing, like trying to optimize the website for Google search results, my partner and I both did a ton of research what is your partner's name? Because we only know his middle name. All right. And I don't know which middle name it is. I forgot. Gordon. But... Yeah. So Seth was his name. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So we dedicated ourselves to trying to understand SEO and how to do that in a effective way to be able to compete with the various competitors that were in the market. At that time, we started to do that. Again, SEO was a relatively new thing, and the majority of the competitors in the market were not focused on it. And you could tell that by just looking at their website. So we put a lot of our own personal time into doing the research. I had a membership to this site. It was called Moz, M-O-Z. And at that time, it was definitely the leader in SEO research. And so we took a bunch of classes. I actually flew out to Seattle to join a conference out there and just really wanted to learn everything that I possibly could. So our strategy initially to get clients was to build a good-looking website that we felt like looked better than our competitors, but also described our services better than our competitors. And then we started actually producing a lot of unique content. A lot of it actually up to that point, because we had owned college student housing, 
a lot of the articles that we wrote were kind of based on our personal experience with managing student housing. We started to pump out these articles. I think that we were maybe doing like, you know, one or two a week. And sure enough, we actually started with just that strategy. We weren't doing any sort of paid advertising at the time. With just that strategy, we started to actually get organic inquiries through the website. And then I started to actually go out on the meetings to actually meet with prospective clients. One of the things that also really helped us too, though, was that Seth had worked for a different property management company prior to us getting this thing fully up and running. That was definitely the other key. So we figured out how to generate the traffic on our own. But the other part of it is, well, how do we actually manage property? There's a certification process in DC to become a licensed property manager. So we both did that. But then he worked for a company for a while. And this was, I think, prior to us actually deciding that we even wanted to start our own company. So, you know, he worked for them for a while, was able to sort of see some of the inner workings, you know, how they like operated things. There were a lot of things that he felt like they didn't really do that well. And he felt we could potentially do better. We took that experience. We took what we knew with SEO and were able to revamp or create the website. And then we started to generate organic traffic. And then I started to actually go out to these meetings. And I think the first 15 meetings that I had, I mean, the first five meetings, I think I completely botched just because it was so brand new to me. I really wasn't anticipating a lot of the questions that the prospective clients had. But part of my strategy was after every single meeting, any question that I didn't know, I would write down immediately after I got out of the meeting, I would go back to my office and I would write down what my response would be for the next time. After a certain number of meetings, I got to the point where I started to hear the same common questions. And it was at that point that I feel like I probably just got more comfortable. They probably saw me as just being a bit more confident. And it was at that time that we then brought on our first client. After that, again, we just continued to do the organic growth. We did some Yelp advertising once we started to get some reviews. And then we eventually did some Google remarketing, some pay-per-click. We started to get into other marketing avenues. But that was how we came to bring out our first client. And you are correct, though. That was definitely one of the hardest parts of starting it. But part of what we thought with generating the content was we wanted to give... Because there was a lot of uncertainty when it came to property management. It's one of those industries that theoretically, and I guess similar to probably other service industries, theoretically, someone, an individual homeowner could definitely put their property up for rent on Zillow or whatever, and they could try to manage the property on their own. But there are so many pitfalls and different things that you learn as you go along, where if you only have a few properties and you're trying to do that, or you just don't have the time, it's just one of those things that like doesn't really make sense. So when we were creating this organic content, part of what we were trying to do was to actually give owners or prospective clients all of the information that they would need to actually manage the property on their own. Like We wrote articles about compliance. We wrote articles about the most effective ways to market the property. We gave them everything that they needed with the hope that after they started to do some additional research on it and they started to potentially go down that path, they might kind of think like, do I want to actually make this another full-time job or do I want to just hand it off to these industry experts to be able to do it on my behalf? So the articles were meant to do that, to show them that we have industry expertise, but then to also give them like, you know, what they needed if they wanted to do it on their own with the ultimate goal of hoping that they would see the value in hiring it out to someone else so that they don't have to deal with the headaches. Are you one of the thousands of businesses getting hammered by supply chain issues? Are you tired of paying insane shipping costs and waiting months for stuff to come from China? Are you still paying those 25% trade war tariffs? Why are you doing that? 
ZipBox.com makes it easy for U.S. businesses to partner with factories in Mexico, and you can find everything there. Clothes, packaging, beauty products, building supplies, and a lot more, with new products being added every single day. All of the factories on ZipBox are verified with no shady middlemen like you can find on those other manufacturer websites. If you want to ditch the trade war tariffs, pay 75% lower shipping costs, and get your deliveries in 5 to 10 days, not weeks, well, try ZipBox.com. For Valentine's Day, I wanted to surprise my wife by manufacturing my first adult product. And guess where I was able to find a manufacturer to produce my big product? It was ZipBox.com. That's Z-I-P-F-O-X.com. There's no membership fee, and you can search without even creating an account. So try ZipBox.com today. I really signed on for the contact details for your guests. That's probably the first time I've seen people willing to give away information. They're just so helpful. Yeah, and for the second part of the pool episode. Okay. What do you think about the pool episode? Yeah, really good. Oh, there are some interviews that went bad, too, that people like on the Patreon feed. Yes, I saw the one with the author. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> did, you, did you listen to it? Yeah, he was a weirdo. Do you remember your first property that you got under contract? It was, a, I imagine, a single-family house? Yeah, it was a single-family house. It was actually, it was a pretty good property. It was a single-family house in Georgetown. And as with most, I think, business owners that are just starting out, initially, people would have questions for us, like, can you do this for us? Can you do a walkthrough of the property every week, like as an example? And we said yes to that. So initially, we said yes to almost everything that a client asked us, which was, I think, part of the way that we were able to at least bring on some of our initial clients. We were fully aware of that going into it, that we knew that we were going to say yes to more upfront than we would in the future. But it was a way for us to just get that base of clients and then to be able to use them as references or potentially have them refer us to one of their friends, right? So we said yes to a lot, and that is not a sustainable way to continue to grow a business. But I do feel like initially that was something that we just did to get the business off the ground. And what are you getting, like 10% of rent or something? We were doing at the time. So we also did a lot of more research before we figured out the pricing. So we ended up actually just undercutting all the competition. The competition, the average at that time was 8% for the rent. We were charging 6.5%. And then for the leasing fee, it was like a full month's rent. And we were charging 75% for that. So we were saying yes to a lot more things. And we were undercutting our competition on price to try to get some of the market share. So you're doing this slowly, again, on the side for a full year. So what is the point when you actually you know quit your full time? How much money are you making the company? Are you splitting it 50-50? Tell us about this decision, because this is the biggest decision other than starting the company. We were splitting all of the profits 50-50. We had really, really low overhead because it was just the two of us. At that time, we ended up purchasing a subscription to an out-of-the-box software. With just the two of us, we were actually making pretty good money between the leasing fee and the property management fee. I want to say that at the time that I made the decision to stop working, I think that we were at around 50 clients. And when I was taking a look at the... And that's in a year, right? So you got 50 your first year? Yep. And I think when I was taking a look at the numbers, where I was trying to get to in terms of my mindset as to what I felt comfortable with to actually leave the current job, I just really wanted to be pulling in at least half of what I was making with my current job. Once I got to that point, I had... Well, what were you making in your current job? At that time, I want to say I was making 80000 bucks a year. 
Okay. And I think that's a good rule of thumb too. I mean, it depends person to person, but to think you're going to get a hundred percent, I think always is you're waiting too long because again, you're only using half your time. So even like you're thinking if you get half of that and you're spending half your time on it versus the IT job, then theoretically that second year can make equal amount, but there's also much more potential because then you're putting your full energy into it. And that was kind of the other point of consideration too, I think, is that when we got to 50 properties and it was just the two of us, it was at a certain point where I felt like I couldn't really dedicate enough time to the property management business while I still had the CompuCom business too. So I knew the goal of wanting to get to at least half of my current salary, as long as it would not be to the detriment of the property management business. I definitely agree with you that if I was pulled that trigger earlier, we probably could have grown it even faster. But just from my standpoint, in terms of being comfortable and my current expenses at the time and how much I had saved up, I just felt like getting to half that point was the right number. And so I got to that point, I ended up making the decision to transition full time to be able to work for myself. Definitely nerve wracking, but also the best decision that I could have made. Okay. How much you were working before that? Were you working like 20 hours a week and then you're able to do more than that? Or what's your work week go like from splitting two jobs to full time into your own thing with your partner, Seth? I was working pretty long hours when I was trying to do both. There was just so much to figure out with the property management, but I think initially it didn't really even feel like work. I mean, it was honestly fun to try to grow something and see that I was able to do it somewhat successfully. So it just didn't feel like a corporate job. I'm putting five hours into my IT job and I'm putting five hours into the property management job. The five hours for the property management just flew by. The five hours for the IT job, just it kind of crawled. So I was splitting it, at least initially, I was probably doing like 80% for the IT, 20% for the property management in terms of time allocation towards the end of it when I got to the point of making the decision to transition full-time to the property management business. It was probably more like 70-30, 70% property management and then 30% to the IT business. I think being remote, there just wasn't as much oversight as there would have been if I was in an office. And I might not have been able to do that had I been in a corporate office. I think me being remote actually allowed me to be able to transition to that 70-30 split. And that makes sense. And Matthew, why he's growing this, I mean, from afar, you're in New York, right? Tom, where are you at this point? Like, I forget, even location-wise. I stayed in DC, then yeah, moved to Arlington, Virginia, which is just like 10 minutes outside. Okay. And then Matthew, I mean, do, do you know about your brother growing the business at all? Or are you just still excited doing your finance job at that point in time? I did know that he was growing the business. And that was the biggest reason for me, at least, to want to figure out a way to join him. And so that's when I decided to, off the side of my desk as well, commute back and forth from New York to DC while still working at my corporate job in New York. They allowed me to essentially work remotely. So I had that flexibility. And I was coming down to D.C. to really help Tom grow the business. This was now after he had bought out the partner, Seth. And so he needed help. There was a lot of things that he, at the time, was struggling with. And I felt like my presence at the company, and I did this for a full year, we just made a lot of changes within that year that I was commuting back and forth from New York to D.C. And that also gave me the confidence that, hey, this is something that I want to do full time. I think when I was doing that, I don't... When I can remember, I was just getting reimbursed my travel expenses back and forth from D.C. to New York. I wasn't actually getting a salary. So that was all discussed prior to me sort of doing this full time, being my wife, because girlfriend, when I first moved to New York, which became my wife from New York to D.C. after that year that I was doing that in between. 
So yeah, you talked about what our take-home might be for the two of us. Decided to split the business 50-50. And I decided to move to DC full-time to dedicate all my time to work on this business. But even before that, for instance, like my brother has a business, but I never talked, like even when I see him, we don't talk really business because I don't see him that often, right? But I mean, like before you joined the company, because we're still only like, I guess about a year in for Tom going full-time into the property management business. Did you know anything about the business from afar? And were you thinking like, hey, I'd like to get in that or talk to your brother about that at all? Yeah. So Tom and I, we actually did talk a lot about the business. Most of the calls that we had a couple of times a week were actually about how the business was doing. And so I had a really good understanding of exactly how the business was progressing. And it certainly sounded very exciting. So we, we caught up on a weekly basis, every probably every other day. Just talking about the business and the challenges, the struggles, how it was with the partner and all that stuff. Yeah. And I think part of it, from my perspective, is that I was also wanting to kind of get his feedback on certain things with the business too. I mean, there was so much that was brand new and I discussed some of it with my business partner at the time, but I felt having his perspective on some of the various things that we were struggling with with the business was definitely helpful. And part of that discussions that we were having was to also tell him and try to convince him at some point to be able to actually come to DC to do this full time. We knew that we didn't really want to split the business three ways because it just wasn't big enough at the time. And so we really knew that we just wanted it to be the two of us. Part of the reason why I came to that decision with my current partner is that Initially with the business, a lot of it is just new business development, and that was definitely not a strength for him. I knew that Matt had, obviously, the experience that we shared at the corporate executive board, and then every job that he had thereafter was a sales job. I knew that for us to take this to the next level, we needed two people that were able to generate new business to be able to go on respective meetings with clients. That's probably the biggest aspect of starting a new business is just like being willing to go out and try to like sell it. During those conversations, it was definitely me and the two of us talking about how we would make this thing work, what the buyout would look like for the current partner, how we would actually fund that buyout and the plans for the future growth of the company. Well, yeah, that makes sense because you were even saying, um, I guess your partner at the time, Seth, and we'll talk about the transition when Matthew came down and not took the place, but at least it just became the two of y'all as his um, 50-50 partners. But can you talk about the transition before Matthew came down with your partner at the time, Seth, right? It seems like it'd be really, really hard for you even to start this business without him. So even that first year or two, that's why I was wondering, like, how the hell do you get into property management when you have any background, which is fine. Everyone's got to start somewhere, but it seemed like it made it much easier. But I definitely see where you were saying, if you're doing the blog posts and everything, I could see how like long-term you're the one driving the actual business, getting the clients, because that's what matters at the end of the day. No matter what business, you've got to be able to find clients and bring them in. And maybe after you got things set up with Seth, he wasn't able to bring in new business or figure out and help you on that. And it's not going to be as helpful, it sounds like. So I guess you kind of came to that realization too. Yeah, exactly. I think that it was definitely on the new business side of things and, you know, him not really, I mean, because he had not come from a sales job. He was working for an engineering company, like right out of college. So that was like his first job. That was where the passion was initially for him. So he just didn't really have, he definitely didn't have the skill to do new business development. And I don't really think that he had the desire or the drive to do it. I mean, there's some people who just like hate sales. They just feel uncomfortable. They don't want to do it. And then other people that love it. And then other people that like just don't mind it. So he wasn't able to do that. And when we first started the business too, as we were kind of figuring everything out, we ran into a lot of obstacles and a lot of things that we had never seen before. Things that just sort of sprung up that like 
we maybe didn't know we should have been doing initially and then found out the hard way that we should have been doing it. Can you give us examples? You know, I think even just figuring out like something as simple as the maintenance for the properties. I mean, I had owned properties and so I sort of felt like I had a handle on how to properly respond and address maintenance issues. But there was definitely a big difference between college housing in upstate New York and the expectations of what a professional tenant wanted in DC. And New York, at least where we were in Binghamton, the laws that were in place were not nearly as cumbersome. Yeah, we're not nearly as cumbersome as they were in DC. DC has a lot of compliance, like probably a lot of other big cities. And so certain things that you have to do that you have to record. One of the mistakes that we made initially is that we were doing a lot of things over the phone. We would be speaking to either an owner or the tenant over the phone. We thought that we were clear on everything. And we actually had this happen. There was an issue that popped up. We had the conversation with the tenant over the phone. We thought that things were clear and that we were on the same page. And then I think it was like two weeks later, we get a letter from DC that there's some sort of fine imposed because of something that we didn't do correctly. And it was a learning lesson for us at the time that we had to sort of think about things in a different way. Do you remember what that was? Because, yeah, that's hard. I can't even imagine like the city finding you for something between you and a private tenant. Like, do you remember what that was? Yeah. So it was something like, I want to say that it had something to do with the air conditioning in the property. And in these older homes in D.C., when they retrofit a house with air conditioning, they're trying to retrofit a townhome that was built back in like the 1890s or like the early 1900s. It's not uncommon when they did the initial install that they're not doing like the load calculations correctly. And so the airflow in all the rooms is not adequate. And actually, this wasn't air conditioning. This had been heat. So it was in the winter and there was one room in the house that was, you know, they had the thermostat set to 75 and there was a room in the house that was down to like 65. I don't remember the exact numbers. And so in D.C., tenants, they have something called the Tenant Advocacy Office where tenants can actually contact them and they can file a complaint. And so the tenant filed a complaint. They came out to do the inspection and they said that the airflow was not adequate in that room. It just wasn't able to bring that, you know, room up to the correct temperature. And if it's not, they basically give you a time frame. They say, if it's not resolved within, you know, three days and we're going to fine you. So like, that's what happened. They sent us a letter. We couldn't get it resolved in three days and they fined us. That's just like one example of. I would say like many hard lessons that we kind of had to learn up front. There were other things that popped up similar to that where I was actually able to get on the phone or sort of craft an email to the owner or tenant. At that time, I was actually trying to meet people in person. So if someone had an issue and I knew that it could have potentially created a fine for us, I would actually schedule time to go out to the property and, you know, be able to talk them off the cliff in person. So I was doing all that. My business partner, Seth, along with the new business development, wasn't really able to handle those types of combative situations. And that was a lot of what we had up front because, again, we just like didn't know what we didn't know. And there were definitely mistakes that we made up front that we had to correct. That was definitely another big part is that I knew that I needed someone who, again, for lack of a better term, you know, had the balls to be able to do that so that I wasn't the only person at the business that was able to do that. And this was prior to, again, us having a full-time staff where at some point you're able to delegate some of those things. All those things combined, I came to the realization that it's just not going to work out with Seth. And it was a really difficult decision for me because to your point, I think without him, I wouldn't have been able to start the company. 
the experience that he was able to kind of share and gather from the prior company that he had worked for was invaluable for us in reducing a lot of those potential mistakes that he would make up front, not really, again, knowing because you just haven't operated in that industry before. So that was really difficult. And I think that that was something that I had to reckon with internally and definitely took me a few months to get to that decision where I said to myself, if I don't do this, then the business won't succeed and I'm going to have to give up everything and I'm going to have to go back to working for a corporate company, which was the last thing that I wanted to do at that time. And leading up to that point, our communication sort of started to die down a little bit. We weren't really communicating as well together. I started to tell him to or ask him to do some of the things that I was doing on the new business side and on the issue resolution side to get him to try to come to that decision on his own where he maybe felt like this wasn't really the right fit for him either. And a few months down the line, I ended up having a meeting with him where I discussed my concerns. I told him I needed to see change with him if I felt like we were going to continue this thing. And I also gave him the out at that point. And I said that, you know, if it's not something that he feels like he can do, I'm willing to buy him out completely. I was also candid with him at, at the time, telling him that, you know, I had been speaking to Matt about potentially joining us. And so he thought about it for about a week and he came back to me and he said that he didn't want to continue and that he was okay with me buying him out. And we signed all the paperwork. I bought him out. Matt ended up coming on with us full time. And unfortunately, I did not maintain any kind of relationship with Seth after we completed the paperwork and, you know, he got his final payout. Well, yeah, no, thank you for walking. You did a perfect job walking us through it. I think that was nice how you were able to do that too, where you start giving them that responsibility for them to come to the decision to themselves and that you didn't like force them out. Because it's always interesting how those partnerships dissolve or whatever, but it seems like you did it as well as you could and given time to think about it. But maybe the first step is you can't force them to go do that stuff. But again, if you feel like you're the only guy who can go talk to these tenants who are not happy Give them that responsibility, see that they're probably not suited for that. And that's what you need to keep going forward. Maybe you need them for the first six months or a year, but you can't just have a partnership forever because they introduce you to a certain industry. If they can't just ride those coattails forever or else, like you said, you're going to have to close a business. You need someone who's going to help going forward and what value they add. So it's good that he came to that realization that hopefully, you said, it, it seemed like it worked out pretty well. So then Matthew comes in and what ends up happening there? Tell us about the transition. So after Seth left and after Matt came in, there was a lot of teaching that had to be done. So Matt, again, was like, you know, new to the industry. And so our first step was for me to teach him the ins and outs and all the hard lessons that I learned to make sure that when he comes down that like, you know, he's not making those same mistakes. And so there was a lot of just like us getting together, me teaching the business. And then at the same time, he was actually studying or to complete his test to become a real estate agent. In DC, it's a requirement where you're either a licensed property manager or a licensed real estate agent. So he did that. I was probably at the time working 16 to 18 hours a day because we didn't really have a staff at that point between trying to train him up and also manage the existing portfolio. It was just a ton of time that was being put into it. Eventually, Matt got up to speed. We were able to then kind of split the responsibilities with the business where I focused more on the operations, the finance and the management side of things. And initially, Matt was just kind of focused on the leasing side of things. They're part of the same contract, but they're two fairly distinct sides of the business. And so we ran like that for a few months. We realized that we needed to bring on some additional employees 
to be able to kind of assist with some of the more administrative tasks and allow us to be focused on more of the strategic direction of the company and not necessarily going out to you know open up doors for a prospective tenant. I mean, we wanted to both have that experience because in my opinion, like as an owner, if you haven't done it from the ground up, I just feel like it's a really, really difficult thing to understand fully and to then, I mean, you could still delegate it to other people, but I feel like the two of us having actually done every single aspect of the business, anything that we asked one of our employees to do is going to be something that we've done in the past and that we have a full understanding on. Right. No, I agree with you 100%. Like I was thinking, or maybe I just heard this. It's like, it's not like you're trying to become an accountant and learn all that. And just so you know that and understand that, but within your own business, you should know everything, right? You are a property management company. So if you haven't done any of that, it's kind of hard to be the head of it. I mean, you still can, but I think it's important what you're saying about that. So I guess as you came on, Matthew, tell us about Oh, the difference between having a job, a real job, I guess, coming into this. I mean, did you take a pay cut as well? And just tell us about that transition for you. I did. I mean, when I came into the business full time, I did take a pay cut. And that was an important discussion that I had with my wife at the time to help her understand that I saw future growth and potential earnings of being a part of this business far, far exceed what I was currently doing for a full time, certain more corporate job. And so once I got her buy-in, then it was all in. Tom alluded to, like you mentioned, when I first started with him full-time, a lot of the days that we had together were from really 7 a.m. until 10 or 11 p.m. And I think part of that was because we were really excited about the business. The other part of it was because we didn't have enough staff at the time. And then the final and most important part was that I was you know, learning the business. And that was from the ground up. And so it was everything from conducting and doing the showings in my own to being a quote unquote showing agent to figuring out and understanding how to actually execute the leases to bring in new clients. And so us being able to have a very solid understanding of each individual facet of the business, I think allowed us to number one, like train the employees and train them well, and also have the employees look at us as saying, wow, these guys actually did it on their own. What they're asking me to do, they've already done themselves. And I think there's a lot of value in that. And then the second part of that is it really helped me bring on and understand how to bring on new clients. And it was because I was able to talk specifically about a lot of the activities that we do on a routine basis. And without having that on the ground understanding and not delegating it up front, that's how I learned this business was to do it myself, every part of the business, every job, I think was critical in our growth as a business, the growth of our company, I think was really a part of Tom and I both understanding every facet of the business and being able to talk about it. Hopefully that helped. I feel like I came at least a little bit more helpful at the end there. No, I, I do. I think it helps. And like I said, it's like going to see a psychiatrist talking about your problems in life. You're like, we're talking with you about our <laughs> problems in business and startups. So, I mean, when we vocalize it, we talk and something else will enter our brains and, and we're like, okay, yeah, there it is. Nice. Well, I appreciate it, Dr. Rock. I belong to this international organization and you get once a month meeting, we all get together and I've gotten frustrated because I go in there and everybody's just kind of scooting over the top of everything and we're sitting there nodding our heads like we know what they're talking about. There's no details to it. For me, it's $700 a month and it's hard to justify, you know? Uh, honestly, I feel like that I've got 10 times more out of listening to your meetings. <laughs> And so over the last six, seven years, what's been the hardest obstacles that you've had to go through in building the business? I mean, the hardest obstacles, the 
have really been getting the right staff in place. And I think that that is a challenge that a lot of businesses struggle with, but it's understanding and figuring out how to get the right staff in place. Then the second part of that, as a business owner, is understanding how to delegate appropriately. I think once you understand and figure out how to do that, it allows the business owner yourself to be able to focus more on the strategic direction of the company, look at the PL and the balance sheet on a monthly basis, do structured activities like that, which is super important for the growth and for the planning of the company. And without appropriately delegating, I think it's just so hard to actually do that. And we definitely saw this with ourselves too, is that it's just all about growth. I mean, we were dead set on, on trying to grow this thing as fast as we possibly can because from a personal standpoint, we wanted to obviously make sure that we were having more success than we were in our prior jobs. But that was the mindset. It was on, you know, how do we grow as fast as possible? And we reached a point relatively quickly, actually, after Matt came on, where we got up to about 350 properties. And it was at that point that we put some work, obviously, into the process initially and like how we we're going to have the team structured. But it's really different going from 50 properties to going to 350. It's like with any, I think, any other small business. When you first start it, you know, you're able to kind of do it with a small staff. It's like super manageable. The owner kind of has their hand in every single aspect. And then you end up growing and you get to the point where like things aren't operating as smooth as they should be because we haven't really taken time to sit down together and refocus and re-strategize about how do we go now from 350 to 600 properties. And it was a bigger challenge actually doing that than it was going from zero to 350. It was a bigger challenge, I think, going from 350 to 600 because the business just got more complex. We had more employees. We had to make sure that we had systems and processes in place to make sure that they were in compliance with all the different regulations that we were faced with. And you know, also, like, how do we further delegate tasks? You reach a certain point as an owner, you can't have your hand in everything. And even though you can't, you still need to have visibility into everything that's happening. And so we sort of hit the brakes when we got to that 350 mark. We re-strategized, we restructured the team to a certain extent. We identified some key hires that we wanted to make. And we put a lot of time and energy and money at that point into developing a custom software, which we built on salesforce.com, into help us to be able to facilitate the future growth that we know that we definitely wanted. And it was a hard decision to make to say, okay, you know, we're going to pull back on trying to grow the business because we know that we're at that critical mass where if we don't figure this out, we're just going to continue to grow, but we might not even be making more money because we just can't operate it in a way that is efficient, that gives us like the profit margin that we need to have. It was like, how do we take the existing clients that we have and make them more profitable? And then also think about future growth in a more streamlined way. And in a way, we're not going to be waking up in the middle of the night, freaking out about thinking about something that someone should have done, but they didn't do. And that just involved, again, kind of taking a step back on the growth and focusing more on training our people, hiring additional people, and then focusing more on the process and the software. And we did that. And we actually did that for about a year and a half. Moving over to Salesforce.com was like a huge, huge undertaking for us. One that we didn't really, I don't think, fully understood the full scope of it when we first did it. We're really happy that we did that, like looking back on it now. And then once we got to that point, then that's when we were able to actually start capturing some of the brokerage business because we ended up starting a brokerage and then transitioning into some of the more, you know, homeowner association, condo association and commercial real estate side of things. 
And we both feel pretty confident that like if we hadn't taken a pause at that point, that we would not, you know, have been able to go into these other businesses. And we would have just been operating potentially with more single family residential units, but we would have been running around like chickens with our heads cut off because we hadn't taken the time to actually figure out what the process should be so that we can take the growth even further. Matthew, what year was that that y'all made that transition? That was um, 2017, 18. Yeah, 2017, 18. Okay. Was this more like Tom Steele that he was dealing with? Because you had been in the business a couple of years. I know y'all both said you're obviously involved in it and 50-50 partners, but were one of y'all more involved in it than the other when you switched over to Salesforce? Yeah. I mean, I took on the bulk of that transition. Okay. What were you doing, Matthew, at the time? Like, Had y'all split and delegated roles? Because that's kind of important too. We did. We definitely, definitely split. There was a clearer separation in our responsibilities. So yeah, Tom was more in the back end systems processes part of it. And then I was more on the front end, client facing, dealing with the staffing, you know, the training, et cetera. That's what I was focusing on. Even though when you were younger, you said it was kind of the opposite though, right? Yeah, it was. Okay. But you're twins, so you can do the same thing. You just can't do them at the same time. Okay. Makes sense. (laughs) As we evolved in our careers, I mean, I realized that I was more suited for sort of the direct client interface or interfacing. Tom was too mean, too mean to him. I get it. I mean, it makes sense. Well, then that's the reason I was asking. And I guess Tom had been a little bit longer, but then I'll ask you, Tom, as far as the transition to salesforce.com. And by the way, if you listen to podcasts, you know, you have to say .com. (laughs) (laughs) That's somebody else likes that. When you're doing that transition, how long did it take? Was it like a year and you thought it would be like a month? Oh, I mean, it was like a year and a half. It's crazy how long. I 100% agree with everything that you're saying. Like, yeah, you probably would eventually fail if you don't make that transition, but then you don't want to make that transition because you know how long it's going to take. But anyone who's made transitions, even from, you said, like the 50 to 350, but then the 350 to 650 properties, walk us through that struggle of how, and then halfway through, if you're like, shit, is this worth it? Should I keep going back? If you don't mind elaborating a little bit more on that. Yeah. You know, the saying like ignorance is bliss. And to a certain extent, it sort of applied to this that like when I met with the Salesforce rep and we were kind of going through like what the system looks like and what the platform can do, which you could probably launch a spaceship using Salesforce if you knew how to code it correctly. I mean, it's an incredibly, incredibly powerful dynamic tool. I mean, it's amazing. But when I had the first call, I thought it was going to be significantly easier than what it ended up being. They made it sound like it was kind of this like, you know, no coding platform and we could get everything set up super easy. And we get into it and it was within that first week and we had to sign a tier contract with Salesforce. And as a small company, signing a tier contract is a huge deal, right? How much did that cost? I think that initially when we had first signed up, it was like 15 grand a year, which, you know, it's still 15 grand a year, right? It's not like we're talking a hundred bucks a month. Like if you had a software like that, a small property management company getting started or something like that. Exactly. I mean, these other software that this sort of prepackaged out of the box software, you know, you pay like a monthly fee, but you're not locked into a, to a long-term contract. So because we were locked into it. <laughs> you can't get out. You're like, shit. <laughs> I'm like, I'm stuck with this. And I knew what it could do because I had done a lot of research on it. So I knew that there was so much customization that could be done where I felt like a lot of the other management software fell short. And our idea of success at that point was growing in terms of gross revenue and net profit, we never really associated success with how many employees we have. I've spoken to other small business owners that are like, yeah, we're doing great. We have 50 employees. We never felt that way. For us, it was about how do we grow as lean? How do we keep our team as lean as possible while still continuing to grow? And we knew that utilizing something like Salesforce 
would allow us to be able to do that. So it was at least a year and a half until we got to the point of being able to actually bring properties over into the system and manage the leases and do a lot of like the workflows that we had set up. It has evolved over time since then. It's still something that continues to evolve. Just I'm not dedicating the time that I was initially. But to your question, though, about if I ever kind of got to the point of thinking like, I want to give up and go back to the old software. Yeah. I mean, that happened probably on a weekly basis throughout that entire year and a half, at least maybe a month or two prior to that, that continued to happen. We got it to the point, though, where I was starting to kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel, and I was starting to really see the power of using a system like that. And I was seeing it get to the point of coming really close to be able to transition the properties. And it was at that point that I was confident that we were making the right decision, even prior to us fully utilizing that system. But yes, that happened all the time. But you sort of reach a point where... I mean, when I was nine or 10 months into it, and I was still questioning whether or not it was the right decision, there are so many things that go through your mind where, one, you have the cost aspect. But I think that the other more important thing is the amount of time that I personally dedicated into trying to develop it in a way that would work for the business. I like look back on those nine months and I was like, I can't give up at this point. I'm not going to kiss the nine months goodbye. But then the other thing in my brain was saying, well, maybe it is time to just cut the cord on this. And, you know, the loss is a loss and just go back to using the other software. For whatever reason, something inside of me and just kind of our future growth priorities for the company was like, we need to be able to grow this thing in a more sustainable way. Property management companies, pretty like well-known thing in the industry, they have really, really small profit margin based on other folks who we've spoken with in the industry. We're operating at almost double the profit margin of other property management companies. And I am confident that one of the ways that we were able to do that was, I mean, we've made some other decisions, but one of the main ways was by being able to roll out this software to allow us to create more efficiency and reduce the employee count, or at least keep it as lean as we possibly can. And hopefully anyone who's listening now who think it's going to be an easy transition with anything with when you're doing on Salesforce, right? It's the good thing is, is that it sounds so great because it's so powerful, but once you get in there, you don't realize like, oh my gosh, maybe I have to hire a developer more than likely to customize it, to have it do what I need it to do and everything. And luckily you were at that point where it made sense. It's not like you were two years in and went with Salesforce because that probably wouldn't have been the right time to make that transition. I agree. And I think that one of the things, I mean, like, you know, looking back, like one of the things that I would probably change is because I'm not a software developer and I don't really know the right way to go about doing this, definitely kind of whiteboarding or drawing out the various flows and the diagram of what you want the overall structure of the software to look like, and then what you want all the workflows related to that to also look like, and be able to just do it in a single document. I would say if I knew that when I first started, I would have saved myself a lot of time. And to your point too, we ended up hiring a developer probably about 10 or 11 months into it. It wasn't like a full-time developer. It was someone that you know just did like freelance work with stuff that I couldn't figure out. I mean, there's a certain thing, a certain aspect of having a keen understanding of the way that the software works. I think that something that I, again, would have done differently is not have gone quite so deep into it. And I sort of wish that I had hired that developer early on once I knew what I wanted the overall structure and the workflows to look like to be able to, at that point, hand it off to a developer. I learned too much about the inner workings and the coding of Salesforce. I got too caught up in that. 
where now it's kind of nice because if we have to make a small tweak, I can do that. But like, is that really the best use of my time? Probably not. So that's something that in retrospect, I probably would have done differently. Yeah. But it's one of those things that you don't realize and you think you're so close every time. I only know because I've been in that seat too, where I had my own database. I made my own Microsoft Access database. And then I'm like, let me go ahead and put on Salesforce. And that was me with just some virtual assistants. And I'm like, dude, I am too early for this. But I had signed a one-year contract and I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> I wish I would have known. Probably I had to wait till I maybe had like five people on staff or something like that to make that transition. But I thought exactly what you thought that it was just going to be like, okay, it should not be that hard. And then I start getting in there and I already had a developer help me. I figured out Microsoft Access database really, really well, where I'm doing all the coding and stuff. And same with you. It's like, I probably should not have done that myself, but I figured out how things flowed and whatnot. But I eventually got to a point, I'm like, I've got to hire someone to help you finish this thing out. But again, when I try to make the transition to Salesforce, I'm like, yeah, I'm definitely too early to make it this because I can't redo this all and with a certain amount of budget to try to make this successful. So, yeah. And that's the other side of it too, is that we were at the point where like, if you hire a developer like full time, I mean, you're talking about a ton of budget being allocated to that. And I think that the other side of it too, I mean, there's something to be said about if you really believe in a software and it really is going to change a business in the way that you think it is, my advice would be to probably spend a good amount of time in that software understanding it. Because if I didn't do that initially, then I wouldn't have been able to even direct a developer in terms of like what they needed to do, right? Because I didn't really understand everything that Salesforce could do. It was at that point, or I think the point that you understand the capabilities of it, that then handing it off to a developer is probably the right time to do something like that. Yeah, makes sense. Well, I guess, Matthew, what's been the most rewarding part of joining your brother in business and I guess doing this over the last you know six, seven years? The most rewarding part has been, at least for me, it's seeing the growth of our staff. So it's seeing employees start at a junior level position, working their way up, making more money and achieving the things that they want to achieve. I mean, that to me feels really, really good. I mean, ultimately, when I sort of go to bed at night, I mean, I think about the number of people that rely on Tom and I to make sure that we're running a good business, right? And one that's a profitable business. And that's, that's a huge responsibility and one that we take really, really seriously. And so I get a tremendous amount of satisfaction seeing people that we've had for the past six or seven years that have been with us through the thing and then achieving what they want in their careers. It feels amazing to me. Thank you both for coming on and doing a joint interview. It's been fun. I think it's only my second one doing it like this, and I think y'all did a great job. But before we get off, is there anything else you want to leave our listeners with as far as any type of entrepreneurs? Because I'd say most of our guys listening actually aren't even in the real estate industry. But again, anything you can learn in one industry, you can apply to another. So is there any words of advice you have for the entrepreneurs listening? Probably the biggest piece of advice that I would have, and you know, something that I'm grateful that we did initially is... And this was actually advice that I that I had gotten from my older brother who also has his own real estate business. The advice that he gave us was to not go too deep and not spend too much money or too much time on kind of strategizing and thinking about what or how you're going to go about doing things. If you don't know that what you're trying to offer or what you're trying to sell to the market is going to be something that you are able to actually sell. A lot of people get caught up in sort of like if they're starting a company with a partner and they want to have all of the legal documentation in place and do all this initial work before they actually go out to the market and kind of test the thing out. Because that's the toughest and most challenging thing I think about being an entrepreneur is like you're afraid that, that the idea that you have is not going to be well received in the market. 
And that hinders a lot of people from going out and just seeing if it's an idea that actually works. Like I have met different people that have created apps and they've spent five years actually working at it before ever, ever testing it to see if it's something that the market actually, you know, cares about. So my advice would be figure out a way to be able to actually test the concept in the market, see if there is a need or a desire or space for prospective clients to be able to actually purchase it. And then once you've identified that that is the case, then at that point, spend the money on hiring an attorney to draft the agreement between partners and all the other stuff that goes into the business. But try not to get too caught up on that upfront before actually understanding whether or not it's something that can be sold. And Matthew, how about you? Yeah, it's similar to that. Focus on execution, right? And don't be afraid to take that plunge into whatever it is that you're looking to do. I mean, there's a tendency, I think, to over-strategize, over-complicate things, which is just not needed. As a sort of part of that, I think it's critical just to make sure that you focus on execution and don't be afraid to just put it out there and see how it's received by the market. And then, like what Tom said, then on the back end of things, if you do find that it's successful or it's well-received by the market, then put money into legal paperwork aspect of things or the system or whatever the case is. But just don't be afraid to put yourself out there or whatever idea you have and test it out and you know see how it's received. Yeah, I guess even going back, Tom, what you're saying about your friend doing that app for five years and just going out there and doing it instead of spending so much time figuring it out is even not the money, but the energy, the physical energy each person has to get an excitement you have in your business. You want to keep going while you can early on, maybe even when you started this management business. It seemed like you were ready to go right away versus you could have spent a year trying to pick the right software and everything before you even get started. But everyone only has so much energy, not even money, but the energy of like excitement. So do it while you still have the excitement. I think it's important. So again, appreciate y'all both come on. If there is a way to reach out to y'all for saying thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way to reach out to both of you? Yeah, you just like, you know, want to reach out to the company, contact at GordonJamesRealty.com, or you can just go to our website, GordonJamesRealty.com. We have contact forms, so feel free to, to connect with us that way. And then we're on a bunch of social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. So yeah, definitely feel free to reach out to us with any questions that you have. Okay. Well, thank you both for doing the interview here today. Thank you. Thank you. It was a great meeting you. Flash forward to 2009, and I'm back in the golf business as a club pro, and I get a message on my MySpace page from a 14-year-old kid in Mexico claiming that I was his father. You know, he says I impregnated his mom in the champagne room at a club in Cozumel on New Year's Eve in 1998. And I immediately called bullshit because I remember that night vividly. And there were at least five other guys with me uh, that were also prime candidates. So I have to go down there as part of a paternity hearing, and the night before I have to testify. So if you want to hear more interesting stories just like this preview, well, become a Patreon member today. You know you're missing out. Just check the link in your episode description below to join the club, or go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Join the club. Join the club. Join the club.